Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Tonight we'll be turning our attention to the first two verses. We gather tonight for the special occasion of setting apart Jordan Nelson to the office of pastor. And I feel like this is an achievement, this is a joyous celebration that has been coming for a while. Many have prayed to this end and have poured into Jordan's life. And for those that don't know, God in his good and mysterious providence has seen it fit to weave my life and Jordan's together over the last 10, 11 years. We were roommates in college. We've been a part of three or four different churches together. We've served on staff at the seminary in Louisville together, and now we're both serving on staff here. Um, And perhaps the most defining thing, at least the most memorable thing that we've done together, was to spend a summer together as International Mission Board missionaries to Indonesia in the summer of 2009. And there are many stories that I could tell about that summer, and Jordan is sweating right now about which ones I might tell. Uh, But I'm going to recount a moment from that summer that Jordan probably doesn't remember. Uh, So before we got on the plane to go to Atlanta and then L.A. and then Hong Kong and then Jakarta, we first met at Heritage Baptist Church with all the other summer missionaries from Alabama for our commissioning service. And after that service was over, Mrs. Nelson, Jordan's mother, came up to me and she gave me a hug. And then she held me tight and she said, now you take care of my baby. And we were about to get on the plane, and I, I seriously and solemnly said I would. I would take care of her baby. Now, I only thought I was agreeing to a two-month commitment on that uh, enlistment there. Uh, and here we are over a decade later. Uh, no, I, I bring up that story because tonight is a significant occasion in your life, Jordan and in the life of our church and in our relationship, because uh, ordaining you as a pastor means that, among other things, you will be responsible to take care of me. You will be my pastor. And caring for Christ's flock is a weighty task, much harder than flying overseas, even though that was hot in Indonesia in the summertime, and eating rice on end, even though that was quite monotonous for weeks on end. Being a shepherd is a calling that requires nothing less than the, God's grace and His Holy Spirit. And so to that end, I'd like to look at a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 4. Paul is specifically talking about his role as an apostle, which is an office we don't have anymore. But, he, but what he says here is true of the office of pastor, which the apostles were as well. They were certainly more than pastors, but they were pastors. And so let's read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4, and I'll be focusing mainly on the first two. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not hereby there, thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness 
and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you would be near to us tonight, that you would speak through your word, that you would form your church, that you would make us what we are not yet, that you would teach us that which we don't know, and that you would make us love Christ even more. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. I have only two points tonight. The first is that a pastor must be a humble servant. The second is that a pastor must be a faithful steward. A humble servant and a faithful steward. Let's look at the first. Pastor must be a humble servant. Paul says in verse 1, So then let a man regard us as servants of Christ. Other translations say ministers of Christ. And significantly, Paul doesn't use the normal words that we might expect here. He doesn't use the ordinary term for servant or slave. He doesn't say doulos in Greek. Nor does he use the word that we know for servant, diakonos, where we get deacon, our word deacon from. He uses a word, huperetas, which is derived from a term meaning an under rower. That's somebody that would be a servant down below the deck of a vessel who would be slaving away out of sight to keep the vessel moving in the right direction. Far from the grand visions of top-down leadership with its glorious rhetoric being showered with the praise of men, Paul instead views his role and the role of all pastors as the role of a humble servant. Much of their work being done out of the sight of the people whom he serves. A pastor must be a humble servant. And what does humility look like in a servant of God? Well, let's think about this for a minute. A proud man knows it all. He's got it all figured out. And therefore, he's quick to speak. He doesn't need to listen to anyone else. He doesn't need to get their opinion. And he's quick to ignore someone else's sound advice. A prideful man thinks he has complete discernment, even acts as if he is omniscient sometimes. But a humble man will be quick to listen and slow to speak. Second, a proud man is impatient. He's impatient. He has his schedule. He has his timetable, his to-do list. And anything or anyone that slows him down is a burden that needs to be immediately removed or bulldozed over. He doesn't have time for things or people that he doesn't find important. But a humble man is patient. He's long-suffering. Specifically, he will be patient with the weak and the slow that are around him, those that the world finds unimportant. He'll be patient with the least of these. Third, a proud man has no need for prayer. A proud man doesn't pray. He's got the knowledge to solve every problem that might come his way, and he has the confidence in his own strength and wisdom to solve the problems. Why stop and pray? Praying's inefficient. It's slow. It doesn't produce the results that I want. Besides, if I'm not going to be out there doing the work, who's going to get it done? He has to do it. It has to be done by him, and it has to be done in his way. But a humble man recognizes that he has limitations, that he actually does need grace in every moment of the day. And so he's quick to drop to his knees in prayer to God. 
In life in general and in ministry in particular, patience and prayer has won more battles than zeal and gusto ever would. A humble man prays. Fourth, a proud man is always self-defensive. He's quick to make sure he defends himself. He usually has a thin skin and he takes everything to heart. Every word of correction, every meager suggestion is interpreted as a direct frontal assault on him personally. But a humble man is aware of his own weaknesses and can take the criticism and thank the critic. A humble man knows that for every pound of criticism, even unloving criticism, he should weigh out the ounce of truth and be genuinely thankful for it. Lastly, a proud man is always discontented. The proud are always discontented. They're looking for more glory. He's looking for the next and the greatest, the next model, the next job, the next excitement, the next promotion. And it happens within the church. A proud man is always looking to pad his resume, hunting for a bigger church, a higher pulpit, a bigger platform, more followers, more praise, more speaking engagements, more glory. He's not content to be a hooperetas, quietly rowing in the underbelly of a ship where nobody can see him and no glory is being showered upon him. He wants to be behind the wheel. Want to be up on deck calling the shots, making the big decisions. This proud frame of heart cannot mark a man of God. A humble man can be content to plod one foot in front of the other, rowing down where nobody can see you and nobody's there to praise you. A proud man can't do that. He's better than that. The proud man's always looking to swing for the fences, wanting to be the hero. A humble man is content to hit a single, move the runners around the bases, do his job, and head back to the dugout. People of God in general, not just ministers, must be faithful to the task that is placed in front of them. Don't look to the side. Don't be coveting greater opportunities. Faithfully plod where we are placed. Much, most of your life will be faithful plodding in unglorious, boring tasks to the glory of God. If you faithfully plod where you're placed, God will place you wherever He wants you, and He doesn't need your jockeying for position or plodding for advancement. In fact, in God's kingdom, the way to the top is to first go down. Jesus said that the first will be last and the last will be first. The slaves, the under rowers, quietly serving in humility, will be rewarded. And the proud men clamoring for the control of the ship will be brought low, will be humiliated. A child of God must not be prideful and a pastor especially should be marked with humility, not with pride. What else does God's Word say about pride? Well, the Bible tells us that pride is not merely a little personality quirk. It's not merely a slight character defect. 
It's not a slight error that needs to be eventually worked on and overcome. Pride is clearly and heinously sinful. It's an offense to a holy God. It's a clear violation of His law. In fact, the Bible says that God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13 Pride and arrogance and the way of evil I hate. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And He will go and be punished. God hates pride. Not only that, the Bible teaches us that pride separates us from God. We cannot be with God if we're prideful. Psalm 138, 6, the Lord is on high and He regards the lowly or the humble, but the proud He knows from afar. A prideful person cannot know genuine intimacy with God. And how could a man of God lead God's people in godliness if that man has pride preventing his own knowledge of God? A proud man or woman separates themselves from God. Finally, the Bible also teaches that pride brings judgment. Pride brings God's judgment. Psalm 18, 27 says that God rescues the humble, but He will humiliate the proud. He will bring them low. And we've all heard the proverb from chapter 16. Pride goes before destruction and haughty, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride cometh before a fall. A proud man thinks he's building his own kingdom, but what he's really doing in his pride is making his coming fall all the more humiliating. Have you felt this tinge of pride in your own life? Have you ever looked and seen these kind of prideful tendencies in your own soul? Where you act like you know it all? That if everyone would just listen to me, then the problems would go away. I can solve the world's problems. Don't know why Donald Trump hadn't called me yet. I could have figured it all out. It's pride. I know I've felt it this way. And what do we do when we recognize these prideful behaviors? And we know that it's separating us from God. Our arrogance is driving a wedge in our relationship. We have to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have to do. We have to remember God's promises. How He said in His Word that He will accept the humble and broken heart. Psalm 51 David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise, O God. He's promised He will not despise us if we come to Him in humility. We have to remember how God has saved us, not by our grace, not by our strength, but by His goodness, His grace. It's our humiliation, the removal of our pride, the removal of our ability to boast was one of the reasons why God saved us by His grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no man may boast. God has chosen the particular way of salvation so that we might be left with no boasting. All we've done is receive. Not by our works, by grace alone. 
And when our pride flares up again and we feel the guilt and the sting that comes with condemnation of the law, we feel that creeping in again, we have to remember that for those that believe in Christ, the penalty that our pride had earned has been taken away. Galatians 3.13 reminds us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, quoting Deuteronomy. Christ has become the curse. The curse that we had earned by our sin, He bore that on the tree. And remember Colossians 2, God has made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. That means your pride had earned a debt. A debt that you could not repay. And Christ has taken that debt notice and nailed it to the cross and has done away with it. The transaction is finished to Telestai. It is done. All of it has been transferred to the cross. But that's not all. That's the first half of it. We have to remember also that the perfect righteousness, the humility that we need, the humility that God's law demands has been provided for us. The law demands that we be humble, perfectly humble, and Christ was that. He was the perfect God-man, and His perfect humility has been credited to our account. Paul says, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It doesn't say so that we might be a little bit better. So that we might be a little bit closer to righteous. We might be a little bit more humble. It says so that we might become the very righteousness of God Himself. Christ's righteousness is robed around us. And the Father looks at us and He sees us wrapped in the righteousness of Christ Himself. And He declares us to be righteous before Him. That's the good news of the gospel. That prideful people like me and like you can be forgiven of our sins. And accepted by God simply by believing in the Son of God. The Son of God who came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the proud people of God. So that they might be brought back to God Himself. And not only that. So that they could be brought together as the people of God in the church to grow in humility. In the church of God. To the glory of God Himself. And if you've never believed in that, then do so this very night. Because if you don't, your pride is setting you up for an eternal fall. Not a little stumble. An eternal plummet into a place called hell. Where your pride will be forever judged. And if you have believed, if you have looked to Jesus and turned from your sin and believed in what's proclaimed in His Word, then think often of the humility of Christ in your place and the love that drove Him to death, even death on a cross for you. That's humility. In light of such a love, who wouldn't be willing to become an under-rower in the kingdom of God? Serving in humble anonymity, pushing the vessel of the church towards its ultimate destination, even though no one can see your work. No glory, no fuss, no pomp and circumstance, just quietly being a humble servant. That's what we're all called to do.
but especially pastors. Pastors should be humble servants. Second, Paul tells us that a pastor should be a faithful steward. A faithful steward. The text says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. A steward is a servant whom the master has entrusted with a responsibility. Usually oversight over a particular portion of the master's household or possessions. The steward is held responsible for the maintenance, for ensuring proper attention and care be given to whatever has been assigned to him. Paul is saying that he and his fellow workers are underlings for Christ. They're overseers standing in place of God. And significantly for us tonight, we should note that a steward does not possess. He's not the owner. He doesn't have full rights over it. He merely guards something that is precious, something that's valuable, and he stands in the place of the master looking out for its best interest. And of what has Paul been made a steward? He says the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. A mystery doesn't mean something vague and undiscernible, something magical. When Paul speaks of mystery, he's speaking of something that was previously hidden, something that was previously unclear that has been revealed, that has been brought into the light. And he's talking specifically about the gospel, the life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. Paul is, and all pastors are, stewards of a message, a particular message. And they are called to be stewards of this message with faithfulness. In one sense, all Christians are called to speak this gospel with faithfulness and clarity, but pastors in particular are called to be faithful stewards of this mystery. We must be found faithful. It is not our message. We don't own it. The message is not ours to tamper with or to, ad to adjust. We are stewards, not the master. Pastors don't have the right to shy away from preaching the hard texts or the doctrines of Scripture. It's not our message to tweak or adjust. Paul warns elsewhere that pastors must take special care to watch over their life and their doctrine. To guard the deposit of faith that has been passed down to them. And that is your calling, Jordan. To be tethered to the Word of God so tightly that your doctrine cannot be tossed back and forth. To stand so steadfastly in faith that the message you proclaim is nothing less than the mysteries of God Himself. Faithful stewards always remember that the Master is coming back. Paul says even in verse 3 that He will be judged by God Himself and not by men. The efforts of a pastor must be driven primarily by a desire to please God, not men, not even the church. Principally, a desire to please God Himself, for He will be the judge if you prove unfaithful. But He will also be the one to give eternal rewards for faithfulness to His faithful stewards. That's how Paul ends verse 5. Each one will receive his commendation from God. A faithful steward will hear, well done.
my good and faithful servant. That's what we all want to hear. That's what every Christian wants to hear, but especially pastors. Jordan, that is your calling. To be a humble servant and a faithful steward. And in your own strength, you will never be able to achieve this. But in the strength of the Holy Spirit and through fervent faith in Jesus Christ, you can have these things. Hold close to Him. Think often of His humility and you will begin to see that through His strength, you'll begin to love the position of under-rower. Huperetas. For Christ's glory and not for your own. And before we move to the laying on of hands, I will issue a charge to Jordan. And then a reciprocal charge to the church. Jordan, if you would please come up front and face the congregation. If you can affirm, Jordan, these ordination vows, then signify by saying, I do. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely affirm our church's confession of faith as summarizing the doctrine taught by the Holy Scriptures? Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with our confessions of faith, that you will, on your own initiative, make known to your pastors the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of Morningview Baptist Church as conforming to the principles of biblical polity? Do you accept the office of pastor in this church and promise to faithfully perform all of its duties? Do you promise subjection to your brothers in the Lord? As far as you know in your heart, do you seek the office of holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote His glory in the gospel of His Son? Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church, whatever persecution and opposition may arise unto you on that account? Do you engage to be faithful and diligent in your exercise of all your duties as a Christian and a minister of the gospel, whether personal or relational, public or private, and endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life? and to walk with exemplary piety before the flock of which God shall make you an overseer. Amen. Now it remains for the congregation to make a reciprocal vow. Members of Morningview Baptist Church, if you can affirm the following question, please signify by saying, we do. Do you, the members of Morningview Baptist Church, acknowledge and receive this brother as a pastor? And do you promise to yield to him all the honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the bylaws of this church, entitles him? We do. It's now time for us to publicly and formally ordain Jordan to the office of pastor. As is in keeping with what we see in the New Testament and has been the tradition of the church throughout church history, the man to be ordained has hands laid upon him and prayer is prayed over him. This is a public symbol of a special setting apart, a special calling that this man is receiving. He's being called out from the flock and anointed in prayer for the special task of shepherding the flock. 
I ask any ordained pastors in the room to join us up front as we lay hands on our brother. Please, pastors, keep your mask on and we have hand sanitizer on either side. I'll ask uh, Sean if you would start us in prayer, Jim if you would go next, and Billy go last, and then I'll close us in prayer. Thank you. 
Father, I ask your protection upon Jordan, that he would, as we read from 1 Peter 5, be able to humble himself under your mighty hand and cast his anxieties upon you, that he would not be discouraged in ministry, that he would not be downtrodden and led to despair, that his faith would rest solidly on you, and that you would protect him from the fiery darts of the evil one who does prowl around. And as Jordan now steps onto the front lines of ministry as it were that you would protect him even more from those fiery darts that will no doubt come help him to stand firm in the power of your mind we ask this in christ's name amen we will close tonight with trey leading us in singing the doxology so please join us in standing as we sing to our great triune god Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise